Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and you're very welcome to the show, which is part of the Education on Fire podcast network. NAPE, which is a non-political charity, works tirelessly to support teachers in the classroom and leads the primary umbrella group of 30 primary subjects associations and unions and gives teachers and schools a voice at governmental level at consultation meetings with ministers for schools. If you'd like your voice to be heard and to find out more information, please visit nape.org.uk. That's N-A-P-E dot Hello, welcome back to the National Association for Primary Education podcast. My name is Mark Taylor. Today I'm chatting to Rebecca Sheik. And Rebecca is part of an organisation called Flourishing Childhood. And I know she has a lot of history in terms of teaching over many years. So welcome, Rebecca, and thanks for chatting to us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start with that professional background in terms of your teaching experience and then we can work through exactly how you go from there to actually helping parents with flourishing childhood. Yeah, so um, I studied uh, to be a teacher in South Africa um, when I was 21, I finished. and I came straight over to London and I taught in various schools in London from state to independent for 17 years before having my own children. And how did you find the culture difference from from South Africa over to the UK? And and what was your experience during those 17 years? I think, um, you know, when you come over and you're 21, life is so exciting. And London is such an amazing, exciting place. Um, It was just full of adventure and getting to know different schools and how it worked. And one of my first schools I worked at was quite a deprived school in Tottenham. And it was sort of diving into the deep end and just learning about all these um, different people who had come over, lots of refugees. Some people had never been to the West End before, um, lived their whole life in sort of one area. Um, so it was it was quite different to South Africa where, you know, space seems so vast, um, even with poverty. Um, and it just was so exciting, I think, coming to somewhere so new and inspiring. And also the education system seemed so exciting then. Um, most of the schools I worked for tended to have quite topic-based curriculums and I really loved that. Um, I also got to work um, at an independent school which was so amazing for me. At 21 I got a job at the Lyceum which I know you know. I do, yes. um, That was just amazing because diving into where not only the children mattered but the teachers mattered, the parents mattered and it was not just about um, learning to read and write but literally learning to love learning. I think that's it, isn't it? It's the, it's the it's the breadth of the curriculum. It's the fact that every child mattered. It was the arts as well as the academic side. It was it's like a one big big furry blanket or big furry yeah. towel. I used to think, you know, that sort of embraced everybody. Everyone was on this sort of learning yeah. path, and everyone was learning from the children to the staff to the teachers to the parents. I think it's that sort of completely all encompassing feel, which I think everyone felt who was involved in that school during that time. Yeah, and also what I loved about it was I actually coming from such a different culture, got to really learn about English traditions and history through sort of the living history that happened within the school. Um, I remember I got invited to, um, not invited, I was part of um, a Victorian weekend. And as part of it, we all had to uh, prepare something for the the entertainment in the evening. And I decided I wanted to learn how to play the um, saxophone. And I basically if I can say, farted my way through it (laughs) on the saxophone. And I I played God Save Your Queen. But it was so exciting to feel confident enough to do that. 
Uh, I think that was the key to their success was that everyone felt that they were able and wanting to be part of that kind of thing. And I think that sort of breeds that positivity and and the 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 feeling of of togetherness, which makes it such a success. Yeah, yeah. So you said you you were teaching for about seventeen years until you had your children, and then did you, you just had a natural break then in terms of of looking after them? What was it that made you think that you weren't going to go back, or or why you decided to have that slight change of direction? Well, actually, the last school I worked at um, was a lovely school, also very topic-based and children-centered and um, lots of breadth to the curriculum. Um, But my job was to prepare children for the seven-plus tests, um, which are quite harrowing, (laughs) to say the least. Um, So I had to really sort of try and get a large amount of information into little six-year-old brains and so that they could then go on to write various tests to get into independent schools in London. And at the time, I noticed sort of really difficult feelings and behavior coming up from the staff and from the children and from the parents. And as a whole, just this uncomfortableness um, and unconscious things going on. So I went on to do a master's at the Tavistock and Portman Institute in the emotional factors of teaching and learning. And um, I did my final dissertation on the impact of the seven plus on group and organizational dynamics, which was an eye opener to say the least. (laughs) Um, And so that sort of led me down a real path of looking at attachment and the emotional well-being of children and actually what really is the foundation of learning um, is making sure that our children feel safe and secure and have strong attachments and um, I went on to have my child and actually the first three weeks of her life I was finishing off my dissertation um, not very con- conducive to good attachment <laughs> no, um, <laughs> Um, I managed to get it done, but that really sort of made me think in a different way and to start to question the traditional teaching approaches and how we parent, really. And so I can really understand, because you've seen it from both sides, preparing children to go through this sort of rigorous sort of testing and, and, and way of getting into the next level of school, and at the same time, then seeing it from sort of that studying point of view and understanding all the all the elements that are going on in between and how did that make you feel in terms of what you'd been through as it were sort of practicing doing that to then actually seeing it from a slightly more bird's eye view um i think it was actually the birth of my daughter who uh, <laughs> was born with a frown on her face um and she made me really question the children that I had taught as well. And, um, you know, there were certain children who really used to trigger me. And um, I then didn't understand that they were triggering emotions in me that were probably to do with my own childhood or to do with other things that were happening in my life. And it really helped me having children to then see that actually there's so much more um, to teaching our children um the sort of emotional life really impacts on everything else so take us through um exactly how that works with um flourishing childhood and 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 exactly the sorts of things that you do to support children and parents um so basically um aware parenting is a philosophy that has been developed by a doctor dr Aletha salter and she's from california 
And basically when she had her first child, um, she had a very traumatic birth and she had no information out there that she could draw upon to support her children. Um, and so as a developmental psychologist, she went on to write books and gather research and understanding really where children are at different ages and what they need to to heal. Um, so she decided to start the Aware Parenting Philosophy and she also has the Aware Parenting Institute of which there are many teachers. And at the moment I am now a level two teacher of the Aware Parenting Philosophy. There are three main principles of the Aware Parenting Philosophy. The first part is that simply of developing strong attachment. And I think sometimes people have this view of attachment of, you know, breastfeeding to 25 and having to move into uni with your child. But it really isn't. Um, it's simply the strong feeling you have towards your child and they have towards you to want to, you know, be the best they can be, behave really well, and just feel really comfortable to share their innermost feelings, whether they're good or bad or angry or sad or happy. Um, so that's sort of the first part of aware parenting. The second part is the one that I think I might be most passionate about, but I'm quite passionate about the, set, the third one as well. Um, it's the use of non-punitive discipline to help regulate children. And I think... As a teacher for 17 years, I used rewards and punishments in the classroom as this is what was done. Um, you know, lots of stickers and praise and, you know, really rewarding that good behavior. And then, of course, punishments. I, you know, I did timeouts in my classroom and, you know, very angry looks sometimes from the corner of my, you know, the top of my eyebrows. And then I came across different information that made me evaluate that in a different way and actually I've come full circle to really believe that children do not need rewards or punishments to help them regulate or behave. Uh, so that's quite a big topic. And the third part is recognizing that children just have this natural healing capacity where crying, raging and laughter, when we allow children to cry and to rage while we lovingly accept it, it actually releases, it's just a stress response. It helps them release stress that's accumulated over the course of the day, or perhaps it might be a, you know, a medical trauma going to the dentist for the first time, or having to go to Amy for the first time. Um, another beautiful thing is their laughter. Laughter is another way to release stress and trauma in children's lives. I think it really is. I mean, as a parent myself, and, and also seeing what goes on in schools through through my music teaching as well it's it's interesting that reward system and and the discipline system but i think what you said there about the third the third section in terms of um people often don't want children to be anything out of the anything further than just being okay yeah. and, and and i think that sense of just they are what they are and if you feel rage then you feel rage and if you're happy then you're going to laugh and if you're upset you're going to cry and yeah. and actually to dampen that down does nothing but actually block off exactly who they are and as they start to understand that they shouldn't do that then then of course that's self-perpetuating isn't it so it's it's really difficult um, for parents often to do that because you know the, these emotions may come at a time where it's not convenient like in the middle of the supermarket or all, yeah. all, the, all those things that we've experienced as parents um, yeah. but of course that's just part and parcel of it so actually it's really important to understand that they are what they are and it actually has nothing to do with you as a as a parent or a person it's it's their emotions it's where they are at a time and for them to be able to express it is a really important factor 
Yeah, I think I've become quite passionate about um, the nervous system as well. And I think the work of a man called Peter Levine and Stephen Porges really sort of um, confirms that this is just a natural way to heal. Um, and yes, the crying in the supermarket can be really, um, you know, not the best place to do it. But actually, if you then, if you allow your children to cry and rage as much as they need to at home, you'll find they don't actually do that out and about. <laughs> My elders can have a tantrum for about an hour at home, but we never, ever have them out in supermarkets or out and about, really. And I think when they feel safe in your home and hopefully one day in schools to be able to cry and rage in a safe way, um, they but won't need to do it as much because they'll feel heard and accepted. I think that's a lovely idea in terms of actually feeling that safety at home, isn't it, so that you can do that. And and the school factor is a really interesting one because, of course, teachers and then the school environment, they're literally catering for sort of 30-odd people at any one time. So any one person that's actually slightly causing a difference of opinion or actually pulling in some kind of emotional focus or whatever that happens to be has a direct effect on everyone else in the class, isn't it? But it's, it's really interesting to have that wider perspective that you just said in terms of if we can support children at home to feel really secure and have that support and emotional um, flow, I guess, then actually that's going to help in school as well. Yeah, and I think um, it's literally teaching parents the science behind it. It's, um, you know, literally a stress release mechanism. So, you know, like if you get a shock, your body shakes. So children, you know, um, Dr. Seltzer calls it the broken cookie phenomenon. So it's when, you know, your child's gone off to school in the morning and you've raced them out the house and they haven't managed to finish building their Lego spaceship or something. Um, you know, they get to school, and their best friend's not there. And then, you know, they've forgotten their swimming costume and so they can't go swimming and I'm making a really bad day. Um, and then they get home and you've made, I don't know, spinach and they don't hate spinach and they've got to eat it. And then right at the end of the day, you say, oh, we, we can have a cookie. And you open the jar and the cookie is broken. And suddenly this child erupts into this huge rage, tears and crying. But actually, that it isn't about the cookie. It's about an, an excuse or a um, opportunity to release all those stuff that has happened in the day that sort of accumulated on top of each other. And it's an opportunity to just let it out. And if we accept it, it means they're able to move on much more easily into the next day and also helps with sleep. It helps with behavior and, of course, attachment. Yeah, and, and let's talk about the second part a little bit because I'd imagine – all, all of these things were obviously obviously linked and, and related but the whole sort of rewards and discipline idea is obviously a very key one especially for parents um, in terms of trying to coordinate what's going on and trying to support children and then if they are having a problem ways of actually feeling like they need some authority or to take some control so talk us a little bit through your thoughts on that and, and how, how the, the different system can work. Yeah, um, so, you know, rewards definitely work and punishments definitely work. But I think it's recognizing that the rewards have to get bigger and the punishments have to get bigger. And um, you will run out of them by the time you get to the teenage years, because, you know, but, but, you know basically it's probably buying a Porsche or something. Um, so what I wanted was for my child to have intrinsic motivation to do things. Um, and there's been loads of research, actually. There was an altruism project with um, sort of research, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, um, between two groups of children. And one group of children 
they praised for doing altruistic um, deeds for helping around the classroom and, and doing whatever they did. And the other group of children, they didn't praise for being altruistic. And what they noticed was the children who were praised either didn't or were less likely to do altruistic things following on from that, whereas the children who weren't praised um, went on to carry on just helping. They were much, were much more likely to do it. So it actually tends to take away your intrinsic motivation, not only rewarding the stickers, but even praise can be a form of rewarding. Um, you know, sort of that good job. I, I, I remember what I used to do it in my classroom, you know, I'll say good, but I actually didn't even look at the picture. Uh, you know, uh, we, we just sort of praise without even really thinking about what we're saying and how we're saying it. Um, so it's just really wanting to intrinsically motivate our children to want to behave. And ways of doing that, are much more difficult in a classroom. That's why I think thinking about the crying and the raging and the laughter and the discipline, it's about really a whole school policy. You have to get together, look at your behavior policy, look at what you really want for the children in the long term. Do you want them just to get to the end of the day without having, you know, with that making sure they sat at their tables and done exactly what you said? Or do you want them to be you know, motivated, inspiring, compassionate, thoughtful adults. Um, so, you know, do you have a short-term goal or do you have a long-term goal for your children? Um, so one of the ways that I support my children is really through play. Dr. Salter has written an amazing book called Attachment Play, and it's got nine forms of play in there that you can use not only to help with discipline, but also to help with children when they've had stressful um, things happen in their life. For example, my three-year-old got lost the other day, only for about a minute, <laughs> um, but it's profoundly impacted our day at the moment. I mean, I literally am out of her side for one second and she was crying and, and that's in our house um, and getting really sort of agitated. So we've been playing loads of hide and go seek, loads of um, chasing games, loads of peekaboo to sort of heal that. I'm interested in the, especially the reward system that you were talking about there. It's in, I guess the, the children that wanting to do something kind, altruistic to, to someone else, it comes from a a place of that just who they are and in, in intrinsically what they want to do um it's interesting that those that were praised then wouldn't necessarily want to do it again whereas the others would um why is that the case do you have a, a, an idea of why that actually makes a difference no it's something about rewarding it takes away your own motivation to do something so those children were motivated to do it but once you reward it takes away your motivation. There's an amazing book by, I don't know if you've heard of Michael Sandel. He's a Harvard lecturer on philosophy. And he wrote a really interesting book called The Moral Limits of Markets. And it looks at how on governmental scales, these reward systems just don't work. We still base our whole society on them. Um, so for example, you know, weight loss programs where you go in and you get a money reward for them. All of those programs have failed, and in fact, the people go on to put in more weight than they had on before, um, as well as these reading programs. <laughs> My librarian wasn't very happy with me the other day because um, they asked me, um, you know, where you get a sticker at the end of um, each time you read a book, you go back and you get a sticker. Yes, yeah. I think they always did in the holidays. And so when I was there this week, he said, oh, would you like one of these? And I said, no. <laughs> I said, I don't believe in them because they just take away children's motivation. And in fact, they've done studies on national levels where um, the reading went below the level it was prior to the reading program. 
Um, so there's something about that reward that then takes away your internal motivation. Well, it's, it, like I say, it's, it's a very interesting topic, that isn't it? Because th- there's so much of that sort of thing that goes on on a regular basis in homes and and schools um, throughout well throughout the world, I guess, not just throughout the country. And um, and so it's, it's why these conversations are fantastic to have because people who can listen and really start to question what they do or or actually redefine how they want to. Um, I don't know, I guess, how, how they really want to sort of bring their children up or, or to actually support them through a school system and and, and how, how that can really make a difference. And um, and so the flip side of that, as we said, was, was the was the discipline side. So no timeouts and anything like that. So what what would be your your view in terms of a child that would traditionally someone would think would need to have be disciplined for whatever happens? What, what would you then do in that circumstance? So, for example, if let's say they were jumping on the couch, um, so I might stop it. So I'd set the limits and I would just stay with them while they're upset. So if they don't want to stop doing it, I would then maybe move them off the couch and say, I can't let you do that. And then when they have a big cry about it, I just stay with them while they have a big cry about it. So it's kind of a term for it is loving limits. So you're setting a limit but you're not angry and you're not punishing them and you're not rewarding them. You're just saying, no, you can't do that. And I'm here, even though you feel really upset about it. Um, But another approach would be play. And in fact, this works so amazingly. In fact, we played this game today. They love it. Um, I just made up the no jumping on the couch game. In this game, you have to do what I say you can't do. And so basically in the game, they can disobey me. So I say everything that they can actually do, but in the game I say they can't do it. So today I said, oh, whatever you do, don't go upstairs and jump next to daddy's bed. And then they both run upstairs and they jump, 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 jump. And they come down and they go, we did it. And then I I sound like a really grumpy parent. I go, oh my goodness, you never listen in this house. And they know I'm joking. And um, then I go, right, whatever you do, don't run to the front door and knock on it. And then they both run to the front door and knock on it. And they come back and I go, oh no, I can't believe you guys never listen to me. And then their favorite part is I pick them up and I go, right, I'm going to throw you out the window. (laughs) And then I throw them on the couch. Um, And what this game does is it creates connection. It also allows them to feel a bit powerful because they are ignoring you and they're disobeying you. And what it does, it helps them not to do the things they weren't allowed to do in the first place. Um, So I played that game when my daughter was three and a half and she's never jumped on the couch again, other than, you know, the occasional odd forgetting. Um, but I never actually had to say, don't jump on the couch. And and how do you think this um, sort of transitions in, into school and that kind of thing when there are more people to do that and more, you know, more... I don't want to say shepherding, but that, you know, that there's more focus on, on on lots of different people. Do you think the same approach can happen? It's just a question of um, involving all the children in in a way that you're actually showing the class how you want them to behave or how you want them to be learning or the environment that you're setting. Yeah, I think it's just such a big. You have to get the head teachers and management on board because it has to be a whole school policy where possible um, because you have to think in a different way and you have to acknowledge children and understand child development. I think so many teachers going into the classroom now having never ever studied any form of child development. So they're expecting a three or a four or five or a six year old to behave in a way 
that they're unable to behave in, um, even in, in preschool. So under two-year-olds cannot be expected to share, and under eight-year-olds can't be expected to see another person's point of view because their brain development actually isn't there yet. So I think it's really about marrying together, understanding where children are at, understanding how the brain works, and teachers being informed in this, and also being just a bit more playful. Um, I remember my class um, always used to forget their lines um, the day before. Well, five years I did Joseph with my year twos, and um, the day before everyone was like, you're just mixing up their lines. And I'd be saying, oh, no, don't do that because tomorrow is our production. Don't forget your lines. But actually what they were trying to do is they were trying to sort of grapple with uncomfortable feelings of nervousness and not knowing what it's going to be like. And actually, if you go along with that, you're actually helping your children to move past those feelings. So instead of I go, you know, just joining in and getting it all wrong, I was so in this mindset that I have to get it right and I lost my playful side and understanding what actually was going on. I just think also teachers need to be given more therapeutic knowledge of children and where they're at. And actually, a lot of the issues are to do with powerlessness, autonomy, choice. Um, and if you're not given that, it's such a, a strong desire and need for, for all of us that um, if we're not given it, we're going to fight for it. And that really is the crux of so much of the education system at the moment, isn't it? Because, you know, as a child from such a young age now, you're told what to do, where to go, how to do it, what you should be achieving, what you shouldn't be achieving. You can do this, you can't do that. Um, and, and I think that lack of autonomy, like you say, has a has a big effect on everyone and including the staff and everything as well. I, I'm, I'm interested to slightly winding back to what you said in terms of the training, because I absolutely agree that it's really if you is a pet is a teacher, if you don't have that mentorship to understand all that training to understand development. But I think as a parent, you don't you obviously you don't get trained in this sort of thing or you don't understand these things unless it's something you look into or something you want to study yourself. But I guess there's a certain amount of of extended family, which historically may be is where you learn those things from. You sort of would learn them intrinsically because you've been aware of them over your growing up years. And, and But then with conversations with extended family and the support network like that, and I guess maybe with less of that these days, that it, it that that's also a little bit of part of why some people don't understand what this is naturally rather than just actually having been exposed to it in a more academic way. Um, yeah, I think definitely not having having such isolated families has impacted quite greatly. But I also think that most of us, not most of us, but a large portion of us come from our own trauma. And what we know is that we parent how we were parented. So we, I think there's a large movement towards wanting to do it differently. You know, yes, having that support around is so important because I think a lot of the stress surrounding parenting is because you don't have, you know, just granny you can go drop her off for an hour at and um, and all those sort of real family ties. And actually, um, there's a man called Dr. Neufeld and he's written a book called Hold On To Your Kids, which I absolutely recommend every single parent should read. And it's about exactly that. He says that our children are becoming what he calls peer-oriented. And it means that they lack adult attachments in their lives, not only because 
extended family aren't around, but because they're going off to school, spending a large portion of their time with their peers, you know, going off to after school clubs, spending the weekend with loads of play dates. And he says children really need those adult attachments to learn and grow and um, more sort of vertically, as you say, rather than horizontally, which is what they do with their peers, um, which often leads into gang culture and, that, and those sorts of um, behaviours. Um, so, yes, I think you're right about the adults. But then also, as parents, we've got to filter through the stuff that our parents did, um, you know, and there's lots of information around at the moment about trauma and being trauma-informed and very difficult to parent if you come from a place of trauma. I myself have had trauma in my life, um, and so that impacts profoundly on the way I interact with my children. I get easily triggered. I've got to be very conscious of making sure I look after myself so that I don't get to that place. And so tell us a little bit about exactly what you do within your work and, and your organisation in terms of the, the workshops that you put on and how people can actually be supported by what it is that you provide. Uh, so I like to share workshops because I think it's really nice to have that one-on-one -on -one time with parents, with a group of parents where you can share and talk about experiences and parenting and I can support them in this way um, because it is revolutionary um, although she wrote her books in the 80s um, it's actually great because Philippa Perry's just written a book called the book I wish your parents had read I don't know if you've seen it but it's great because it's actually saying all the things Elise has been saying for a long time there's an amazing man called um, Dr Thomas Gordon he wrote a book called Parent Effectiveness Training also wonderful talking about the punitive discipline and non-punitive discipline. If you want to really dive deeply in how to do it differently, his book's amazing. Um, so I lead workshops. Um, my main workshops I do are about play because I not only find play really difficult, um, surprisingly, um, the more I teach it, the more passionate I become about it because it's just phenomenal. I mean, this afternoon um, we had a play session uh, it just sort of randomly happened. We were all sitting on the couch together. My husband was home and they play, They like to play the sitting on my lap game and they fight over me. So one sits on my lap and the next one sits on my lap. Um, and then Saba wanted to play the no game. So we played the no game and I threw out the window a couple of times. Not really. Um, and then my husband dressed up as a pirate. I'm not sure how happy he's me telling the world. But, um, and chased them around the house, um, and, which was loads of fun. And then we had a hide and seek. It just happened to be a really playful afternoon. But then I said to my daughter, oh, could you go and just tidy up the lounge because um, all the stuff's there? And she started to go, oh, and then she just went, okay. And off she went, and she just tidied the whole lounge. Not a problem. It's quite late. Um, and then I said, you know, so all that art stuff's out from this morning. She said, oh, yes, I was going to go and do that. And off she went. And so I think play is just so phenomenal because it fills their cup so profoundly that it then means they help you with other things around the house and are more cooperative and more loving. Um, so, yes, play workshops are one of my favourite ones to lead. Um, I do one with children, so you can bring your child along and then we go through the sort of nine types of play and you get a chance to play with your children while I, I share some of the, the, the techniques and the therapeutic knowledge. And then I do one just for parents, which is quite fun because we get to play. And actually, the last workshop I led, everyone said I have to do it an hour longer because I didn't have enough time to play. They didn't have enough time to play. <laughs> um, 
And then, you know, just various workshops as well on why children just um, misbehave. So Dr. Salter believes there are three main reasons. Basically, they have an unmet need, they lack information, or they have this need to cry, rage, or laugh. And so how can we support them in those three reasons? And I also sort of organize larger events. This coming September, I have invited a man here from Belgium called Jürgen Pieters. He's a, a psychotherapist, uh, author. He's written his own parenting book. He's a mediator and a systemic therapist. And he's going to lead a full-day workshop on democratic discipline. And basically, he'll be looking at the three main aspects I said about aware parenting, but he's got loads of experience of parenting in this way. Um, I also offer one-to-one consultations with parents, which I love to do, just really sort of diving deeper into why our children are behaving. Often parents think it's something really surface level, but once we start to dig a bit deeper at why that child is not sleeping or, you know, why that child keeps hitting their brother, we, we can sort of work through it and find support them to move past those behaviors. And um, I've also introduced a new sort of service, um, and it's where parents connect with me once a week for 30 minutes, and we sort of touch base and I support them in this way of parenting. Right, so there's there's, there's so much going on there and, and, and so many different ways that people can get involved. So could you tell them the best way for them to get in touch and to find out all that information online? Yeah, sorry, just to mention too, I was sort of only talking about parents then but also if you're an organization and and a teacher or um from a school please i also do workshops to support teachers to think about um changing reward and punishment systems in schools and also really thinking about why children are behaving as they are and helping them look beyond the behavior to the need or or what they are actually trying to say um so to contact me i have a website www.flourishingchildhood.com you can also contact me on facebook all the links are on my website and i'm not much on twitter but i do try and post regularly on instagram too that's fantastic and we'll we'll have all those details on the show notes of this episode as well so you can go to educationonfire.com forward slash flourishing childhood and, and we'll have links to everything that we've been talking about and uh, and to better get in contact with Rebecca directly so thank you so much Rebecca it's been a fantastic conversation and really um, opened my eyes and, and my mind to some, some of the parenting and, and teaching things that I experience on a weekly basis and I hope that's been the same for everyone listening so thank you very much indeed. Such a pleasure thank you for having me.